Just Some Podcast Media. The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You You have been 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 warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. Tom, how are you doing, man? I am doing just swell. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah, you had a little vacation time, right? A little vacation time. Here was the problem with the little bit of vacation time. I feel for everybody else that's been in the situation, you know, all those little things you're always like, I just don't have time to take care of this, and then you put it off. Yeah. Well, I figured since I had several days off in a row, on addition to my normal days off, I would try and do them. So in essence, all I did was work. On your days off. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, it was fruitful. So today I decided, nope, I was going to watch the F1 race. I was going to sit in my lazy boy and not do anything. And I did. And Ben, it was um, everything I wished it could be. I understand. We uh we broke the seal on the camping season this weekend. We took uh, took the camper down to the lake here locally and sat around the campfire, drank a few beers, and just listened to some bullshit stories and just had a great time. And my wife has figured out that she thinks that we need to be old enough to be able to do this all the time as opposed to, you know, this silly work thing that we have to do. Silly work thing. Did you tell her that that involves her not spending any of that silly money so that you could save it for the camping? Yeah, no, that's not it. Also, a <laughs> equation that has not fully transferred over at my house as well. So I spend money as well. And she works hard and she has the right to spend money. I just sometimes I look at the receipt. And I'm like, that many zeros on a trip to Target, huh? I didn't realize that that was necessary. How many new bath mats did you exactly get while you were out doing this? So You spent 65,000 yen on a dog? What? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I didn't want to go on that Disney cruise anyways. I've been saving up for a year to go on and <laughs> vacation time. No, I didn't want to. But anyways, I still have a couple days left. I'm looking forward to it. And... um yeah, I'm just going to enjoy relaxing and not doing anything. Good. Maybe that'll lower your blood pressure. Well, Ben, since you brought that up, I'm actually flabbergasted at the pinpoint accuracy at which you led that transition. It's almost like we had talked about what we were going to talk about beforehand. I don't know. It's kind of crazy. But <laughs> I guess before we get into that, probably need to do the social media stuff and all that good jazz as well. So you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, all at Just Some Podcasts. You can find us on the web or at www.justsomepodcast.com. Our email, admin at justsomepodcast.com. Don't forget to check out our sister shows over there. We got Buried Pleasures with Polly and Amazing, and we got Nurse Papa with David. Those are some amazing shows as well. Check them out. Their shows are available. Our shows are available wherever you download your podcast. Tom, if they want to help us out, what else can they do? Well, Ben, they could go to our website before they do any shopping on Amazon. They can scroll down to just about the bottom of the page. They can click on our Amazon affiliate link and then go and do all their shopping just like they were going to do anyways. But it helps out the show and we would really appreciate it. And 
Ben, since you brought up our two other shows that we work with, I got to listen to some of the most recent episodes. Well, I guess for Nurse Pop, it wasn't completely recent, but he did one called A Slice of Fatherhood. Yes, I love that one. Yeah. Okay. So not only was I laughing, I was also imagining it being me. Yep. And then also some of the insight, I was like, you know, David, damn you. This is like just like on point. So I highly suggest the Nurse Papa show. And Pollyanna had a guest educator on and they talked about some of the things going on in the LGBTQ community. And it was just information I think we take for granted that we know. But listening to this person kind of break it down and give some more depth and insight was like, oh, oh, I had not considered my point of view you know, on this subject until I heard it from somebody else. And I was like, wow, okay. And I'm not saying it it will change your entire world. Well, hell, it might. I don't know. But well, I'm sure there's some people that are going to listen to it go, you know, I never thought of that. There was a lot of stuff I'd thought of, but then she would say something. I'm like, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. So really proud and happy to be working with both those shows. And I think everybody should give them both a listen. Absolutely. And while we're, you know, giving shout outs to podcast, we did get the opportunity to guest host with Tina from Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Um, that episode actually just came out while we're recording this, came out a few days ago. We got to do some talking about a, a bad doctor and then a, a good dermatologist. And we had a lot of great fun with her. It was a fun episode. Tina's a great person. And on top of that, I would also say I like our podcast, obviously. That's why we keep doing it. But sometimes you hear about ideas for other podcasts and you're like, oh, that's a good idea. And she really hits on that true crime vein that I know my wife and all her friends are deeply entrenched in. And I was just like, wow, you really picked a good topic. Like you did well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Like this one's going to go far. So huge shout out to Miss Tina. And again, good episode. Had a lot of fun. Hopefully sometime in the future we can do something with her again. So yeah. And I might in a few months, you know, here or the next couple months, I don't know. Might have a new show on the Just Some Podcast family. You just never know, Tom. You never know, including me. So there you go. (laughs) We'll talk off the air. I love the surprises. I'm like, what? Was I drunk when you told me about this the first time? What happened here? I mean, you are on vacation, so it's possible. It's completely possible. Well, Ben, are we ready to... uh jump into that thing we normally do next. Yeah, the story that you may have missed. So, Tom, I felt, you know, knowing what we were going to discuss in the main main meat of this episode, try to find stories that tend to tie into that. Or are just hard to pronounce. Either words are hard occasionally. Tom, do you ever have stress? You know, Ben, I like to think of myself as a life surfer. I'm totally laid back. I have that very just zen, nothing shakes me attitude. And uh, I just look at every day as a cool breeze on the beach, Ben. I don't think I've ever been stressed a day in my life. I think you're lying, but okay. That was (laughs) dripping with sarcasm for anybody who did not pick up on that. Ben, you're stressing me out (laughs) by talking about my stress. Well, so. There's a new study out, Tom, that says that stress may have some important cognitive benefits. More than 75% of adults living in the United States report experiencing emotional or physical symptoms related to stress. And in a recent survey, the American Psychological Association Commission found that um, 78% of adults in the U.S. are experiencing significant stress associated with the current pandemic. Just to give you some ideas of what some of those uh, symptoms may be, the symptoms for chronic stress can include headaches, digestive problems, skin problems, pain, lack of focus, energy. 
irritability, easy to anger, forgetful, um, eating too little, too much, misuse of alcohol, drugs, feeling depressed, insomnia, and some palpitations. But this new study that came out was done at Penn State University and it was published in APA's Emotion magazine. In the study, the researchers tracked 2,800 participants for just over a week. Before the study began, they gave all the participants a cognitive test. Now, they tracked them up for eight consecutive nights. They asked about their chronic conditions, physical symptoms, stress, things of that nature. 10% of the participants did not report experiencing stress during the study period, and these individuals were more likely to experience positive moods and less likely to have chronic health conditions. However, the participants who did not experience stress scored lower on the cognition test than those who did. The difference in scores equated to a cognitive decline that would occur in approximately eight years of aging. So they're saying potentially that stress at some point can cause some improved cognition. Basically, your brain is working harder, I guess. Obviously, more research is going to be necessary to define the correlation between stress, health, and emotional well-being. Their team findings may offer new insight into how to interact and process stress, which is largely unavoidable event for most people, except for Tom, apparently. Um, he notes that the findings suggest it may be better to change response to stress than try to avoid it outright. They are quoted as saying, stressors are events that create challenges in our lives, and I think experiencing stressors is part of life. So, Tom, what are your thoughts? Well, if stress is a way of making your mind work harder, I have the hardest working mind <laughs> In the northeastern United States, probably right now. So that's that's a good one. He's got the James Brown mind. <laughs> <laughs> the hardest work of mine in show business. <laughs> yeah, my goodness. I mean, basically the way I, I equated this was there seems to be a healthy amount of stress that can actually cause some positive benefits. Obviously, excessive stress is a problem, but it's finding that fine line. Again, I think stress to a small degree is a good thing. A small amount of stress. And I'm not saying there aren't people that aren't successful that don't have any stress, but man, it's just like fear. Fear is not always a bad thing. You know, there, fear can create good results if it's channeled. But again, like you said, and we've talked about on the show from uh, the other podcast we talked about, EM Over Easy, where they talked about, you know, it's not the situation. It's how you react to the situation. Yes. And I think with either stress, fear, anything like that, how we react is the most important part because in healthcare or even out of healthcare, you're never going to avoid stress. But I just my brain just isn't making the equation work. It's like, no, I understand small is better, but I don't think I can modulate the amount of stress. Like my brain just assumes everybody else is stressed out all the time. So it's not a good thing. You're right. Penn State, get your ass in gear, start doing some more studies or something. But it would be interesting to see, you know, because like you said, obviously it is a part of life. And even like you mentioned, the fear, even the fight or flight, I mean, there is some positive benefits to some of those negative, quote unquote, negative uh, parts of life, I guess. So, well, and learning to deal with it is, uh, I guess, the more important part than trying to avoid it. That's a failing strategy, I think. It's true. It's like trying to avoid traffic. You just, you can't. Yeah. No matter what you do, you're going to hit it sometimes. It's only how you deal with it, Tom. Well, I deal with that poorly. Mostly with uh, vague threats, loud shouting, hand gestures. I have recently started uh, teaching uh, my son and sometimes his friend when I pick them both up from school. I'll just point to other cars that are driving or doing stupid things. And I'm like, see that, kids? They're like, yeah. And I'm like, don't ever drive like that, asshole. Life lessons from Tom. <laughs> That's me helping the future generations of America. Well, hey, it's going to be effective. You just wait a couple years from now when they're learning to drive. 
They'll be like, don't, don't turn left in a lane with heavy traffic behind you and hold everybody up because that makes you an asshole. I'm like, yeah, yeah, don't do that, jerks. <laughs> don't be in the fast lane across the five-lane highway and want to get off on the next exit and just all the way over. Yeah. Yeah. Or how about this? If you're not passing somebody, don't be in the passing lane. Let's start with the basics. Let's start with something easy. You, oh God, you're going to stress me out now. But see, I do that to Tom occasionally with the times that we have convoyed places just because I know it pisses him off. (laughs) (laughs) Just just screaming. I hope your lug nuts come off your car bed, (laughs) hanging out that left lane. Damn, I hate that so much. Anyways. I said, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll get into our main topic, which we're going to talk about is hypertension. Are you lacking financial direction or need a second opinion? If so, MyNP Advisor is a virtual financial planning practice that focuses on working with nurse practitioners, and they've developed a unique process that evaluates five key areas of your financial life. They call it the Check My Vitals procedure, and for $500, it addresses some of your biggest financial concerns, like, am I saving enough to maintain my lifestyle in retirement? Is my family protected from a catastrophe? Do my investments match my tolerance for risk? Listen, if you have more questions than answers, then you're probably due for a checkup. So click on the link in the show notes to learn more about the five benefits of checking your vitals. And if you're ready to move forward, you can even schedule your appointment directly from that link. Yeah, the link is down in the show notes. It's a great place to start. Securities and advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated, member FINRC SPIC. Additional advisory services offered through Premier Financial Partners LLC, leader Royal Alliance, my advisor, primary financial partner, just some podcast, ring against your affiliate. So, Ben, we have been trying to do some more educational episodes or strictly educational. We want every episode to be educational. But since we are now accredited to do continuing education, we try and do some episodes that are more strict on the education aspect. And I think tonight's episode is going to be a really good one. So especially if you've been doing this for a while, you might hear some things that are new to you. If you're not in healthcare, you're going to learn a lot. Or if you're a nursing, like bedside nurse, like registered nurse, nursing student, or a NP or PA student, this is going to be a good episode for you because we're going to treat something that you are going to see literally every day in some form, and that is hypertension. Yes, gotta love the blood pressures. Well, you don't have to, but you're, you're going to, again, like stress, you can't get away from it. You might not deal with it all day, but you're going to deal with it at some point. Like if you only have 10 you know, patients that day, I guarantee you two of them for sure are going to be direct hypertension. And then what you're going to find, and this is for everybody listening, you're going to find that you're going to be dealing with it indirectly related to some other subjects. So hypertension isn't always just a standalone topic. And before you get into this, Tom, I got a question for you. Have you, in your experience yet, gotten the ability to tell someone, please stop taking your blood pressure? Because I have. I have had a lot of success and I've told them they could cut back. Well, I just mean in general, like, because, you know, I have some patients who've, they'll take their blood pressure and it's a little bit high and they'll freak out. And so then they'll check it again and then it's high and they'll freak out. And then it's, they check it again and it's high and they'll freak out. And I'm like, for the love of God, please stop checking. You're allowed to do it once a day. That's all I want. No more. You're not allowed. Okay. So that I thought you meant like we, I don't want to say the word cure. I'm doing air quotes here, but cure their hypertension. Okay. So that, Yes. Frequently, some individuals, they are just, and it's the same thing with diabetes. I have some people that I'm like, okay, you know, technically 
we need to talk about this because your A1C is elevated. You are, you know, termed diabetic at this point. And they're like, oh God, I'm going to die. I'm like, no, no, 6.9. You're not going to die, but we need to get on top Time of to get on this. Top of things, yeah. The people at that 142 over 90, oh God, I'm going to die. I'm like, well, not today, you know, but we, we're going to try and prevent it. So I have definitely had that conversation of taking a measured response and one time a day, blood pressure, taking it 12 times a day is not going to help. It's not going to help me any. It's actually just going to make everything worse. So please stop doing it. Sometimes you're going to have to have those conversations with people and literally straighten them out and be like, look, you can't continue to make this worse by doing those things. Also, and I've had students I've talked to about this and I've had, you know, some just people in general ask this question, like, how do you bring up obesity or how do you bring up smoking? I don't feel comfortable having that conversation. When you're talking about hypertension, I'm not saying every person. I'm just saying often, you know, obesity and or smoking can be part of the conversation. And this is one of those times if you've always been afraid to bring up their smoking habits or their weight, this is a time. This is a time to have that conversation because even if they feel uncomfortable and you feel uncomfortable, you know that those are two direct links to this heightened blood pressure. And I've had often had patients who, you know, talk about their blood pressure and they're like, if I lost weight, my blood pressure would be better, wouldn't it? Yeah. And that's an opportunity where you say, yeah, you know, if you lost, you know, 20 pounds, you're, you're going to see a significant drop in your blood pressure. So lots of times they'll kind of even open that can of worms for you because most people know they're overweight if they're overweight and it, it probably is bothering them. So it is a good, like you said, it's a good jumping off point when talking about blood pressure. And certainly I don't want to pigeonhole this. There are plenty of people with completely normal BMIs that have elevated blood pressure. But in general, you'll see the link as you practice for a while. It's not something to be afraid of, and it's not something I try and bully or beat up patients. I know sometimes I read those responses that are like, well, I don't even know why they were talking to me about my weight, or I didn't want to hear anything about smoking. Well, you know, in the case of hypertension, it is a direct linking cause. So it is something you should realistically be addressing. Now that we got that out of the way, Ben, I think it's kind of important for us to actually just define what hypertension is. I would agree. And I used a variety of sources. I'll try and name them as I do. The American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, the American Academy of Family Physicians. You're going to see a lot of different information and a lot of it's out there to the CDC. All of it has good information. There's a really great table on the American Heart Association where it gives you a color-coded visual box. And basically, the new guidelines are 120 over 80, and we'll talk about what those numbers mean in a minute, or below is considered normal. Elevated is considered 120 to 129 systolic, which is that top number, or still less than 80 for the diastolic, which is the bottom number. Where the new guidelines a couple of years ago came into and where you're going to start to see the biggest change is stage one hypertension is the 130 or above range. Stage two is 140 or above all the way up to 180, which is when you get into what we call a hypertensive crisis. That kind of starts to lay the foundation of when you need to A, start addressing this and B, what you might want to start doing. And you know, you're talking about the systolic and diastolic and obviously... Our practitioners are obviously going to know what that means, but just a quick review for nurses or for non-medical people. So the systolic number is when your heart is squeezing, and that's the amount of pressure that it's eluding versus the diastolic is when your heart is relaxed. So I have this conversation with my patients frequently, and I say, you know, that bottom number is the one that I really get concerned about. because That bottom number is 105, 110. That's your heart at rest, and it's still exuding that much pressure. That's a big problem. Yeah, and a lot of times... 
people just focus on that top number, the systolic, and they kind of let it get away from them. And unfortunately, that can bite you in the end because another thing I try and relate to my patients is there's a reason this is called the silent killer. You know, for years and years and years, you can have elevated blood pressure, not address it, not take care of it, not try and fix the causes. And then one day you have a heart attack and people are like, oh, I didn't even see it coming. Well, you did. But you didn't notice the symptom until the symptom hit you. So it's extremely important to make sure that your patient is aware of what's going on and what needs to be done. Realistically, the next most important thing I think to understand about hypertension is that there's essential hypertension and then what we call a secondary hypertension. Primary or essential hypertension is exactly what people are thinking of when they think of hypertension. They have high blood pressure due to various reasons or causes, but it is a standalone diagnosis at that point primarily. Secondary hypertension means you are having elevated blood pressure. Unfortunately, it is likely due to, I shouldn't say likely due, it is being caused by another disease process such as kidney disease, thyroid disease, etc. can be causing you to have this blood pressure. So they do require treatment for both, but different causes. So it's important to understand that. Some of the risk factors for primary hypertension or central hypertension, since you kind of hit on that earlier, age is going to be the biggest one. Advancing age is associated with increased blood pressure, obesity, like we alluded to earlier, family history. Um, Hypertension is approximately twice as common in subjects who've had at least one or two hypertensive patients. Race, hypertension tends to be more common, be more severe and occur earlier in life and be associated with greater target organ damage in black patients. Uh, Reduced nephron numbers, high sodium diet, and excessive alcohol consumption, and then decreased physical activity. You know, in some of the things, people always think of heart attack when they think of blood pressure. And that's 100% correct, because that's one of the things it's going to lead to. But there's a bunch of other things that can happen as well, okay? We're talking about stroke. We're talking about vision loss, heart failure, which is not the same as heart attack, uh, kidney disease and failure. And then here's one that a lot of guys need to understand is sexual dysfunction. Yep. When they talk about erectile dysfunction, guess what? It may be your blood pressure that is causing your problems. So, yeah, we can treat you with a couple medications, but guess what? None of it's really going to matter. Or if you would just lose some weight or let us address your blood pressure, you wouldn't even need some of these other medications. So it's always important to understand not only what blood pressure is, but what it can do to you. And I do think I think it's an important conversation to have with patients when you're when you're talking about blood pressure, because like you said, they just it's not something that they think about. They don't think about all the other stuff that blood pressure affects, basically. Again, that's why I think episodes like this, this is like in my head, I think of like going back to basics. You know, we could talk about high speed stuff like trauma and the cool sounding stuff. But guess what most of us are missing is a good, strong foundation and stuff like diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, stuff like that. So it is always good so that you know, so that you can also pass that information along to patients. And if you are one of our non-medical people listening out here, I'm glad you're listening so that maybe you have a greater grasp. All those symptoms that you've been passing up, not wanting to go talk to your doctor about, maybe after this episode, you'll want to go talk to them. So the next thing, Ben, is starting treatment. Now, here's a good question for you. Mm -hmm. Because this is a trend, not just in the United States, but around the world, is we talked about weight and age being significant factors in raising blood pressure or rising blood pressure. And we're starting to see a lot of blood pressure at lower ages now. Due to obesity, stress, smoking, I mean, there's a bunch of factors. 
But something that used to be, like you said, relegated to 50 and older, guess what? I'm seeing it in the late 20s, early 30s in some cases. So do you have a set criteria ahead how you attack this? No. Okay. I was going to say, I wish, I wish there was some kind of cool way and that everybody could be put into one box. Unfortunately, they can't. And I think that's also some of the confusion that happens with treatment of hypertension. And there are some good guidelines out there, like JNC8. Yeah. And that's not what I'm talking about. So if you're listening, I'm not talking about not following guidelines, but the realism of the guidelines versus actually putting rubber to the road and getting patients to get treated are not the same. Very true. All right. The criteria can tell me that at 130 or above, they need to be treated. Guess what? There's a lot of people that will not start treatment. So I guess that's what I was trying to get across, Ben, is when you have somebody or do you have some loose guidelines in your head of, okay, so we're not going to start blood pressure medications. We're going to talk about other factors. Like, how do you tackle that topic? So when I have a patient in the office who I suspect is being hypertensive, the first thing that I want to know is I want to make sure that, well, first off, I'm going to see if they are willing to do some blood work because I want to check kidneys, things of that nature to determine if it's going to be a primary or secondary. Yeah, you know, so I'm going to do, I'm going to pull a CBC, CMP, saturate, CRP, pull urine, just different things to kind of check things out. The lipid panel as well. The other thing I want to do is, and we haven't really hit on it yet, and there's not much to really hit on, but white coat hypertension, which is basically where blood pressures are elevated when they're in the office and when they're at home, they're, they run normal. So I will ask patients before I start them on anything, unless they are just adamant that they come in and they want to be on something, which does happen. We're a pill-based society. It does. Is I will say, you know, do you have a way to monitor your blood pressure at home? Yes. Okay. What I want you to do is over the next week, I want you to check your blood pressure at home. Call me next week with the numbers. And if they're still running high at home, then clearly it's not white coat hypertension. So then we need to start having some conversations about either cutting out salt or trying to be more active, trying to do some of the non-pharmacological ways. And at that point, I will often offer to start on something like HGTZ, which is kind of one of the first go-to for medications for most people. That is a very similar situation I'll have. I also try and express to them the importance of A, A, if they're a smoker, quitting smoking. B, if they have not made any dietary or lifestyle modifications. And again, it's also dependent. If they're 150 over 100, I'm like, no, this ship is sailing, buddy. Like We're going to have to jump on this. Unless, of course, and I have had it, people are like, no, I don't want to take any meds. Or I want to try something else first. And that's usually what I hear. I want to try something else first. And I'm like, okay, well, I try and explain the risks and that they've probably been there for a while. Like you didn't show up today with 150 over 100 blood pressure. Like it's been that. You didn't know it. (laughs) I'm just telling you what it is. But if they're fairly young and we're talking like 136 and they haven't done any modifications, I generally do try and offer them the, hey, do you want to try cutting out sodium, drinking more water, trying to lose some weight, getting some regular exercise? Things like that are proven to drop your blood pressure before we start on any uh, medications. That's generally how I'll go. Or even into like the low 140s, if they're just like, I don't want to take meds. Okay, well, here's what you can do. But realistically, once we break the 150s, I'm like, uh, I'm not going to go home with you and make you take meds. But we really need to talk about starting a blood pressure medication. And I'm very similar with... I mean, again, I look more of the diastolic personally, which I mean, I know we alluded to earlier, but, you know, if you're at 90, I may give you a little bit of leeway and probably not going to sell you as hard on something. But, you know, you start pushing 97, 98, 99, breaking the 100 barrier on the diastolic, you know, we got some problems and we need to address some things and figure some shit out. 
Yeah, and I've had that same conversation on the diastolic where patients are like, but my top number is fine. I'm like, yeah, but the bottom number isn't, which is a problem. There's a reason we use both. You're like, I don't need both numbers for no reason. That brings up a really good is the first line of treatment for the blood pressures, as you said, is in non-African-American patients, HCTZ, which is a thiazide diuretic, is one of the first treatment options. So with HCTZ, the spiel that I give patients because I'm really getting really good at it because it's kind of my initial go-to. I've done it a bunch, yeah. Okay, so what this is going to do is this is going to pull some of the fluid out of your circulation to basically make your heart not work so hard. So basically what you're going to do, you're going to pee more. You're not really going to notice that you're going to pee more frequently. You're going to pee more volume and you're not really going to notice that. But it's going to pull some fluid out of your system, which is going to make your heart work less hard, which is going to drop your blood pressure and make you feel a little bit better. See, I have taken a similar route explaining because I am more of an ace, and we'll talk about this here in a second, I try and say your heart's nothing but a pump and your arteries and veins are nothing but tubes. There's too much fluid volume in those pipes and pumps. So the pump's got to work harder. So we're just going to pull some of that fluid volume off, especially guys. And again, I don't think any of my patients are dumb. I'm not trying to give that impression. But when you're not familiar with the anatomy of the human body, But if I say, hey, you work on cars for a living, and they go, yeah, I'm like, okay, this is a pump. They know what a pump is. Everybody understands what a pump is. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm trying to take that route. But no, the thiazide diuretics are one of the first. As a matter of fact, according to the American Academy of Family Physicians, in the general non-black population, including those with diabetes, initial antihypertensive treatment should include, and this is not all of them, this is one of them. Either thiazide diuretics, calcium channel blockers, ACE inhibitors, or ARBs. Or you throw them on all four and hope for the best. Well, you could, but they're going to come back and go, I keep passing out every time I stand up. <laughs> so, and there is a specific difference. So as I said, the general non-black population. So if your patient is African-American or black, thiazide diuretics are still first line or calcium channel blockers. Those are the first two that you realistically need to be going to. And I usually will just go ahead and jump to a calcium channel blocker just because I know it's going to work better in that in the African-American population. Yeah. I would say the only problem I've had, especially when we've tried several other medications, and I know this can happen with calcium channel blockers, and so this is just a little tidbit if you get started on a CCB, is lower extremity swelling. It's not always huge, but I have had several patients that are like, you know, I took lisinopril for 15 years and then they started me on amlodipine and all of a sudden my feet keep swelling up. I'm like, well, unfortunately, calcium channel blockers, you know, can cause that. So just be prepared for your patient to come back like all of a sudden like, oh my God, I'm having swelling in my feet. Well, let's see what their medication is first. But it is important that you know what your first line medications are so that you can get them started on. And I also tend to be very conservative and starting at a very small dose and then incrementally, usually in 30-day periods. And that's what the guidelines say. So don't get me wrong. I'm not like, I invented this. It's great. (laughs) It's the Tom method. Yeah, the Tom method or what everybody else on earth knows that practices medicine. But I have found that a couple of times when I get new patients from other practitioners, uh, not nurse practitioners, any provider, they're like, I'm like, they did what? They're like, yeah, they just started me off like at 80 milligrams a day. I'm like, wow, what was your blood pressure? They're like 152. I'm like, all right. So 121. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, wow, that is impressive. So I tend to take the I can add more approach. 
to both my patients. And I am also, especially when that diastolic number is high, I'm also very big on dual therapy, on lisinopril with hydrochlorothiazide or HCTZ. One pill, two medications. I try and make sure I tell them that because when I first started, I just said, I'm going to start you on these medications. And then they only got one pill. So then I kept getting phone calls. There's only one pill. You said medications, <laughs> plural. Yes. So I try and make sure that I educate my patients more thoroughly now. And I explain that they're going to be getting both medications in just one pill. So here's a little trivia. Ooh. And I think we've talked about this on the show, Ben. So I'm going to test your brain here. Because it's one of those little cool facts I know, so I feel like just dropping this knowledge bomb whenever I can. ACE inhibitors. Yes. Do you know what they are based off or how they were founded or based off? Either one. Not off the top of my head, no. Pit viper venom. I did not know that. I don't know the doctors, and I'm sure it's some really cool name out there. It was a doctor in Brazil who lived in a region of Brazil which is infested with pit vipers and kept getting patients coming and dying of low blood pressure from getting strikes by this specific type of pit viper down there. And he goes, hey, I wonder what happens if I give you just a little bit of the pit viper venom. And guess what? ACE inhibitors were born. That's very interesting. I mean, legitimately, that's kind of cool. That is cool. It's one of those things. It's just like when people talk about, you know, you know what warfarin is? I'm like, yes, rat poison. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I give it to you on purpose. So oof. I also try to have that conversation with all of my patients is anytime I give you something to take, I'm not against pills or medication. I'm against giving them for no reason or just because the patient wants them. And I try and tell them, Everything I give you, there is a pro and a con. Like even ibuprofen, there is a pro and a con when you ingest this medication. And blood pressure medications are no different. Like ACE inhibitors, you know, they can start giving you a cough. You can get anaphylaxis. Lymphedema. Yeah, there is education you definitely need to give your patients when you are first starting them on these types of medications. But the important thing to take away from this episode isn't that pit viper venom can be used to treat blood pressure. It's that ACE inhibitors are some of the first line medications you should be considering in a non-black patient. I just wanted to bring it back around because I started talking about pit vipers a bunch. Which there. is still kind of cool, though. <laughs> and I have seen patients who do get very specific lymphedema related to their ACE inhibitor, like lip swelling or something along those lines. And is like I tell patients, you can take a medication a hundred times and be perfectly fine. And then the 101st time, your body's like, nope, not today. And lips swell up or something swells up. And it's like, okay, well, it's we got to make the change for the medication. The other thing that I do with my patients, you know, hypertension, like you said, it's a big thing. And we treat it a bunch. And we see this in a lot of the nurse foundation basement groups about, you know, how do you treat hypertension? What do you use? And obviously, there's tons of options. And it's just kind of feeling your way through and knowing what's best for your patients after practicing. But one of the things that I stress with my patients is if you come in, and you see me and your blood pressure is 150 over 100 and you feel fine, your body's been running at that for a long time, for an extended period of time. So I basically tell patients, and kind of like you equated to a pump, I tell them, you know what, your RPMs have been just, you've been redlining. So when I give you medicine, I'm going to do it slow, like you mentioned, because I don't want to just drop you completely because you're going to feel like shit. And I said, but there's still a real, very real possibility that even with a little bit of medication, you're going to bring that RPM down to a more manageable level and you're still going to feel like crap because your body has gotten acclimated to running at 150 over 100. And so when I drop you down to even 130 over 90, you're still going to be like sluggish and like, I just don't feel good. 
well, your body will reacclimate to it. It's just going to take a little bit of time. You're just going to have to trust me. Also, don't stand up fast. <laughs> it's, it's, it's shocking to me how what I'm like, okay, so it's shocking because I guess in my head, if I was standing up and I started to feel faint, I would just sit back down. But unfortunately, and this isn't just my personal experience, this is just in general, some people decide, no, I can walk it off. And then they end up, you know, having some syncope. So when you are first starting somebody on some of these blood pressure medications, you also might want to explain to them, especially in the beginning, you might start to feel some of these symptoms where you might start to feel like you're going to have a loss of consciousness. If you do, be safe. Don't just like, I'll walk it off because that's actually going to make it worse. And especially in your older populations, you want to make sure that you're educating them. When they're taking blood pressure medications, any medication really that can cause potential problems. You know, when you're going from laying down in your bed, you need to sit on the side of the bed, get your bearings for even, you know, 30, 45 seconds before you go to, to stand up because you can drop your blood pressure and then you're on the floor and then we got all kinds of problems that you don't want. Well, and I'm also glad you brought a bed because one of the those things that people don't think about that is a big concern with hypertension is obstructive sleep apnea. And a lot of people, they don't want to get the test, myself included. They don't want to get the test. They don't want to wear a CPAP, you know, for various reasons. But I try and explain to them, it's not just about getting some sleep and not snoring. I mean, there are real life changing and dangerous symptoms that come with obstructive sleep apnea, not to include hypertension or AFib. You know, these are things that you have to deal with if you want to continue to like, you know, live. So it's always important to, I would never badger a patient, but this is one of those things like I try and make sure I'm clear. Like if you don't want to take blood pressure medications, that's fine, but you're not going to walk out of the office and tell me you didn't know. Like we're going to talk about here's what can happen if we don't correct it. So I think it's extremely important for people to understand not just what is going to happen with hypertension, but what the potential outcomes are and what the treatment methods are. And, you know, going back to kind of talking about treatments, I found something on up to date talking about that. Because, again, it is it's hard to figure out what medication you want to start for what patient or, or how you want to do that. The statement that, that they make here in talking about initial therapy is each of the antihypertensive agents is roughly equally effective in lowering the blood pressure, producing a good antihypertensive response in 30 to 50 percent of patients. There is, however, wide intrapatient variability as many patients will respond well to one drug but not to another. There are some predictable differences, such as black patients and older patients generally responding better to monotherapy with thiazide or CCB and relatively poorly to the ACE or the beta blockers. So again, as long as you're starting your patient on something, you're probably going to get at least some response, which is going to be better than doing nothing. But don't be scared to go, well, I don't know what medication to start. Start on something. And I feel like this is the time to talk about, because in an hour, there's no way we can cover every aspect of hypertension. But for instance, like when we talk about ARB medications, are there differences between ARBs like Losartan or Valsartan? Yes. So for example, somebody is diabetic or they're at higher risk for a stroke, Losartan may be more appropriate than Valsartan, which is more appropriate for people that are prone to heart failure or increased risk of heart attack. Some of those things are just information that if you're a provider, you're going to have to dig a little deeper before you provide them to your patient. The point of this episode, though, was to make sure that people understood, you know, facts, like Ben just said, that there is a relative good chance that any medication you start them on is going to have a similar effect. So the important part is knowing what classes of medications you can start them on and then getting them started on it. And then having those tough conversations and what tactics you want to use to get your patient to follow hypertension guidelines. 
the big one for me is, and I try and again reinforce to all my patients, blood pressure medication is something that if we get your blood pressure under control, we can take you off of. You know, I, I can get you off of this if you're willing to do all those things. Like stop smoking, lose weight. Yes. Yes, because I think far too often people are like, well, if I start a medication, I'm on it for the rest of my life. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, for a lot of people, that is absolutely true. But it doesn't have to be. If you're willing to do those other base functions, like Ben said, quit smoking, lose weight, cut out sodium as much as you can. I try and make sure my patients know that this is not a sentence. This isn't a punishment. This is me trying to keep your heart healthy so that you can live. That's realistically what it is. And I try and make sure I go over stuff like, hey, you know, it's stuff like sodium reduction. A lot of the times this is also something I hear about sodium reduction is, well, I don't put salt in my food. So then I got to break it down. It's like, okay, well, prepared foods are naturally going to have more sodium in them due to the preservation process. So if you get it out of a box, get it out of a can, you're heating it up. Guess what? It's got sodium in it. So having to have sometimes education about, and I think this is what separates nurse practitioners from some other types of providers, is we trying to educate the patient in a total treatment plan versus you have a disease, here's the treatment. Like, here's the pill to fix that. Not that other physicians and PAs don't do that. I'm just saying I think that's kind of how our training is more geared to give them that education and say, well, if you want to get off lisinopril, you got to cut out sodium. So you got to stop eating frozen pizzas. It basically just goes back to, you know, we were bedside nurses, you know, whether it was ER or the med search. There's tons of education that nursing in general does. And so when you take that next step to advanced practice nursing, then that education still, it's not like you just stop educating people once you start having the ability to write prescriptions. You know, we, we still provide that education. Though if I could, I would. If I could just be like, listen here, peasants, and then make somebody else do all my work for me, I absolutely would. But I can't. And I think I once heard a statistic one time that there was like 60% of people that have hypertension are going to require two to three medications to effectively control their blood pressure. I don't remember what that statistic was and don't quote me on that, but I do remember hearing something along those lines. Well, I also heard a statistics one time that 71.5% of all statistics are made up on the spot. So. <laughs> Tom, I love you sometimes. Dick face. That's okay. I don't like me either sometimes. So <laughs> I just wanted to stress once you get your patient on a blood pressure medication and say they come back in in three months or a month and you're, you know, things are getting better, it's not a set it and forget it. You know, it's something that you're going to have to continually monitor. The other thing to be mindful of is as we get older populations and we're taking care of them, they're on 17 medications. You need to make sure you're pulling lab work. I've pulled lab work on patients that I've seen for years, and then all of a sudden their creatinine has jumped dramatically to the point that I'm like, well, shit, we're hurting their kidneys now. And I pull them out their thiazide, and the kidneys rebound fine. So just because you start them on the thiazide and things are working great, and they've been on it for 20 years, don't think that that's just a forever medication. You need to continue to monitor not only your patient's vitals, but also the lab work the diagnostics to ensure that we're not hurting them by continuing that medication. Well, and that's a really good point, Ben, actually. That's something we failed to really highlight and cover is part of the diagnosing process, that lab work, is getting, you know, your basic metabolic panels, getting, you know, making checking renal functions. I always pull a TSH just to check that as well. 
there's a wide plethora. It depends on your ordering catalog you have, uh, you know, through your EMR. But making sure you're checking that creatinine ratio and getting a urinalysis is also really important to see if there is that damage to the kidneys like you were just talking about and what we need to do to try and fix some of that stuff. So in, in talking about initially, I mean, at least for the majority of patients, things are going to look fine. But it'll, then at least you have a baseline. So that a year from now, if you recheck lab work and their creatinine has jumped dramatically after you started on the thiazide, then you need to have that cognitive reasoning to go, you know, maybe it's the medicine that I put them on. Yeah. Sometimes it's not them. It is you. (laughs) It is very important. And also, rarely are you going to have hypertension by itself. Hypertension is going to come with diabetes or hypertension is going to come with hyperlipidemia. Hypertension is going to come with whatever condition. Raging alcoholism. I mean, you just never know. Raging alcoholism. Yeah, get that GGT. The point is, though, you're not going to be treating just hypertension usually. So, again, the information we gave you tonight was, in essence, a good broad overview and the basics of treatment. But you're going to have to tailor it to your individual patient because they're all going to be different. Not everybody can just go on a lisinopril. I'll have my nurse start calling patients tomorrow and <laughs> explaining that apparently that's not just the medication. Like, you know. Just keep giving it to them. I'm up to 300 of lisinopril. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> Stop doing that if you are. So, yeah, I just keep giving them more lisinopril. I'm, I'm detecting a problem with your diagnosing and treatment right now. The pharmacy said that too. I don't know. It was weird. I hate it when the pharmacy keeps trying to stop me from giving medications to my patients. So that's four times the normal, <laughs> normal total. <dose>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On that note, if you like this episode, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, all at Just Some Podcast, or website, www.justsomepodcast.com, our email, admin at justsomepodcast.com as well. Well, Tom, again, I think this was a good episode. I'm hoping at least if you're out there and you're a new nurse practitioner or you're a student and you're getting ready to get out, the big thing that we're trying to stress is, you know, make sure that you're checking your basic steps, but do something for your patient. Don't be freaked out and go, oh, well, there's 400 different medicines out there. I don't know which one to use. Do some research and do something it's better than doing nothing. Absolutely. On that note, Tom, I don't know what we're going to talk about next week. Uh, I'm hoping we can talk sports medicine. If we can pull that off, we'll see. With a guest. We'll see. Yeah. I can talk about sports and sometimes medicine. So let's just put those two together. On that note, hey, everybody, wash your damn hands, wear your damn mask, get your damn vaccine. Have a great week. Hey, everybody, stay safe out there. Practice wearing just to pass the time. Lately, I see why.